Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, pedophilia, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Two paper coffins sat on the windowsill of Robert John Maudsley's prison cell. After washing the blood off his hands and face, Robert admired the coffins with sinister satisfaction. The water ran red with blood as Robert rinsed off his makeshift knife. He glanced at his reflection in the mirror, making sure his appearance remained unblemished. He couldn't leave a single drop of blood, nothing to give himself away, not until he was done. Satisfied he was at least clean, Robert gazed proudly at his handiwork. The body of a fellow inmate lay in the center of the cell. Blood from dozens of stab wounds leaked onto the floor. Grunting with the effort, he pushed the corpse beneath his bunk, hiding it from view. With the body tucked out of sight, he looked back towards the windowsill at the two tiny coffins. They were a reminder of the promise he'd made to himself. He would kill two people that day. As he approached the open door of his cell, Robert gripped the knife tightly in his hand. One down, one to go. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. This is our second episode on the life and murders of Robert John Maudsley. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. Last time, we looked at Robert Maudsley's traumatic childhood and the abuse he suffered at the hands of his parents. As an adult, he discovered a violent tendency to lash out when confronted with sexual predators, leading to his first two murders. Today, we'll talk about Robert's other murders committed while in prison, how Britain's prison system struggled to handle him, and how he became the infamous legend Hannibal the Cannibal. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app, and you're good to go. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? poltergeist activity do you believe in ghosts malevolent entities are aliens real could you be abducted we don't know but what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast scared to death exploring all of the possibilities each week we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales curious about the paranormal just like a spooky story do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days come join us new episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. (laughs) 
having endured decades of physical, mental, and sexual abuse from those closest to him, 25-year-old Robert John Maudsley was desperate for help. But he had a plan. Sitting on the edge of his threadbare cot, hunched over the floor, he carefully filed down the sides of a metal spoon on the concrete floor until it was sharp enough to draw blood. He might be locked in a maximum security prison, but he had a busy day ahead. And he had a purpose. Unable to control his violent thoughts, Robert was prone to lashing out at those who reminded him of his traumatic past. Perhaps hoping to avoid spilling more blood, he asked Wakefield administrators for help. He needed to be treated by a doctor or sent back to a psychiatric hospital. Unfortunately, all of his requests were denied. No one realized that the decision to ignore Robert's warnings would have deadly consequences. The voices in his head demanded blood, and he couldn't hold them off for much longer. Robert didn't want to kill, but he had no other option. After his years at Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital, Robert likely learned that the only way to get the attention to effect change was through violence. He must have hoped that if he created enough carnage, the courts would get him the help he desperately needed. So on July 28, 1978, just before his scheduled yard time, Robert stood at the open door of his cell and scanned the prison wing. As inmates filed past on their way to the yard, Robert watched, deliberating on who he would kill. Like his last two murders, he wanted his next victim to be a sex offender. But there were plenty of those in Wakefield, and he didn't have a specific target in mind just yet. Until, that is, his eyes fell upon 46-year-old Salni Darwood. Darwood was a convicted sex offender, serving a sentence for the murder of his wife. Seeing him started the voices in Robert's head screaming. They wanted him to kill, and Darwood was who they chose. Unlike the first two men Robert murdered, Darwood hadn't abused any children, an unforgivable sin in Robert's eyes. In fact, the pair were even on friendly terms, as Darwood taught Robert's French class at the prison. But in that moment, Darwood was close enough to what Robert needed. He was a sex offender, and he was vulnerable. That was all that mattered. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to a 2013 study published by psychologists Angela S. Book, Joseph A. Camilleri, and Kimberly Costello in the Journal of Interpersonal Violence, those who exhibit psychopathic behavior have been shown to pick out victims based on how vulnerable they perceive those people to be. A significant factor in that assessment is nonverbal physical cues, particularly how a potential victim walks. It's possible these simple cues influenced Robert in that moment. He picked someone who was alone and who also seemed weak enough to kill. Robert clenched his shiv, keeping it hidden from view as he leaned out of his cell. Keeping things friendly, he invited Darwood inside. Once Darwood crossed the threshold, Robert kicked the door shut and pounced. Robert tackled the older man to the floor and attacked with merciless precision. He plunged the makeshift knife into his victim, stabbing Darwood in the back, the neck, and the head. The attack was so swift that Darwood barely made a sound. He lost consciousness before he could cry out for help. 
But as with his previous murders, Robert wasn't satisfied with simply killing his victim. He wanted to make Darwood suffer. So in spite of the already fatal wounds he'd inflicted, Robert wrapped a string around Darwood's neck, squeezing until the man had no life left in him. When he was sure his victim was dead, Robert rolled Darwood's corpse underneath his bunk and carefully washed the blood from his hands and face. He couldn't let anyone know what he'd done. Not yet. There was still much to do. With Darwood's still warm body hidden away, Robert was ready for his next victim. But luring another inmate into a cell proved more difficult than he anticipated. None of the men walking by took the bait, forcing a frustrated Robert to move on to plan B. He tucked the shiv into his waistband and set off towards the prison yard. It was exercise time and the yard was bustling with inmates. Robert spent the time in the fresh air chatting with friends and scanning the crowd for potential victims. But it was no good. He realized there was no way he could attack someone out in the open like this. So, after an unsuccessful time roaming the yard, Robert returned inside and strolled along the cell block, figuring out what his next move should be. But his planning was interrupted by a chance encounter. In an open cell, Robert noticed an inmate taking a late afternoon nap, completely defenseless and alone. Robert recognized 55-year-old William Roberts, a pedophile serving a sentence for the sexual assault of a young girl. Robert felt his blood boil as he watched William sleeping. Moving carefully so as not to make a sound, Robert crept into William's cell. He hovered over the sleeping prisoner, thinking back to his tragic childhood. He didn't see William Roberts before him. He only saw his abusive parents and remembered what they had done. Someone had to pay, and if his parents weren't there, William would have to do. Robert drew the shiv from his waistband and without hesitation stabbed William in the neck and head. Startled awake, William tried desperately to defend himself, but it was all in vain. There was nothing he could do to stop Robert's crazed attack. By the time William finally stopped moving, Robert had stabbed him dozens of times. But even as his latest kill lay at his feet, Robert's bloodlust still wasn't satisfied. When he'd finished with the knife, he dragged William's body from the cot and, in a frenzy, smashed his head into the wall again and again. When little remained of William's skull, Robert finally dropped his lifeless body onto the floor. His task was over. He'd fulfilled his purpose for the day. Now it was time to show the rest of the prison and the world what he'd done. They would finally see and they would have to help him. Coming up, Robert Maudsley becomes Britain's most feared prisoner. Hi, it's Greg. Parcast has a brand new series sure to become your next podcast obsession. It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join host Alastair Burton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD Dr. David Kipper. 
you'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers. Like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. Now, back to the story. In July of 1978, while serving a life sentence at Wakefield Maximum Security Prison, 25-year-old Robert Maudsley murdered two of his fellow prisoners in one blood-filled day. But his attacks weren't wholly without purpose. He was desperate for authorities to finally recognize the danger he posed to those around him, and he was on a quest to kill sex offenders. Which explains why he made no great attempt to cover up his crimes. After finishing off his second victim, Robert strolled to the guard's office with a sinister smile. By all accounts, Robert was a horrifying sight, covered in blood and clutching a dripping shiv. Unfazed by the day's events, Robert dropped his makeshift knife onto the guard's desk and dryly stated, it looks like you'll be short too on roll call. The Wakefield staff failed to see the funny side of Robert's actions. As the blood dried on his skin, he cooperated with the guards who handcuffed him. Meanwhile, their colleagues ran to find his victims, perhaps hoping they could be saved. But Robert knew that the two men were beyond help. When the guards walked into the grisly crime scenes, that much was clear. The men were mutilated beyond recognition. Robert made sure he wouldn't be ignored again. In the wake of these two gruesome murders, authorities were finally forced to take Robert's threats seriously. And as he waited for the trial, word of the violent slayings reached the media. Across the country, people were shocked by the sheer brutality of the crimes. As news of his latest murders spread, refreshing memories of his murder in Broadmoor, Britain's press delighted in doubling down on his cannibalistic reputation. Robert had mixed feelings about the media attention. On the one hand, some of what they reported wasn't true. He'd never once eaten his victims, no matter what the rumors said. But at the same time, it seemed the world finally recognized he was mentally ill and that he needed help. He must have hoped that the courts would judge him accordingly and send him to a psychiatric facility. When his trial began, Robert's lawyers argued that he was not born a murderer but that he was made one by his childhood trauma. He should not be seen as a monster, but as a victim of physical, mental, and sexual abuse. On the stand, Robert recounted the trauma of being mistreated and neglected by his parents. He told the court that he genuinely believed that if he had killed his abusive parents as a teenager, he would not have murdered anyone else. But as he was never able to bring his parents to justice, his violent compulsions only festered and grew. Robert also revealed that during his heinous crimes, he saw his parents' faces in all of his victims, perhaps offering an explanation for why he mutilated their faces beyond recognition. He wasn't a cold-blooded killer. He simply wanted the malevolent faces to disappear. He wanted the torment to stop. 
Without proper treatment, however, he saw no possible end to the cycle of violence. So Robert pressed the courts to send him to a real hospital or treatment center where he could receive help for psychological trauma. A prison or a prison-style hospital like Broadmoor wasn't going to cut it. But despite his pleas for help, Robert's request was ignored. At the conclusion of his trial in 1979, he was sentenced to a lifetime of solitary confinement to be served not in a mental institution, but in a prison. It seems he was denied even the substandard mental health care at Broadmoor. Likewise, he wouldn't be returned to his old cell at Wakefield either. In light of his brutal acts, prison administrators were forced to reevaluate how to contain Robert, who many regarded as the most dangerous man in England. Robert was quickly moved into solitary confinement at Wakefield. Then, in 1983, officers told him that a new cell had been constructed, especially for him. 30-year-old Robert was shown to a different part of the prison, one separate from everyone else. He was led down a long flight of stairs into the prison basement and shown to his new home. While he was away, Wakefield administration had prepared special accommodations for Robert, completely separate from all other prisoners. They called it the glass cage. A prison within a prison. A solitary confinement chamber meant to keep Robert completely isolated from the rest of the prison population. At about 264 square feet, the chamber was larger than a normal cell. But its size wasn't the only thing that made the glass cage unique. Built into each of the solid steel walls were large acrylic windows that were bulletproof and shatterproof. The design ensured the safety of prison guards and allowed them to monitor Robert 24 hours a day from all angles. From then on, he had no privacy whatsoever. Making himself comfortable in his new accommodation would prove impossible. Inside the glass cell, Robert was given a small table and chair, both made out of cardboard. And like the floor, his bed was solid concrete. It was clear that Wakefield's administrators had no interest in healing Robert's childhood trauma or improving his psychological well-being. His cell wasn't designed to help him, it was made to break him. While Robert remained confined in a prison cell, his infamy spread across the world. Although it's unclear if he was the direct inspiration for author Thomas Harris's literary antagonist Hannibal Lecter, Robert's influence seemed to have shaped his character. His specially designed glass cage appears to be the model for Lecter's cell in the 1991 film adaptation, The Silence of the Lambs. Following the film's success, British tabloids gleefully emphasized the connection between the cannibalistic Hollywood villain and the real-life prisoner at Wakefield. Headlines proudly declared Robert Britain's own Hannibal Lecter. Even locked away in a prison cell, Robert was something of a pop culture fascination. However, he wasn't a fan of his new association with Hannibal Lecter, because it was, of course, inaccurate. Robert hadn't actually eaten any of his victims. But often, sensationalism trumps truth, especially when there are papers to be sold. So as the years ticked by, Robert's reputation as a crazed cannibal only grew. By 1991, after more than seven lonely years in his glass cage, 
38-year-old Robert was given a refreshing change of scenery. Without explanation, he was transferred from Wakefield to Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight, a popular vacation spot off England's southern coast. Despite the sunny backdrop Parkhurst offered, Robert was miserable. Unable to escape his violent reputation, he remained a social outcast. Prison guards and inmates alike avoided the infamous so-called cannibal at all costs. But after years on his own, Robert found something of an ally. A few months into his stay, he caught the eye of Parkhurst's consulting psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Johnson. At this point, Robert was a ghastly sight, gaunt, pale, with sunken eyes and a long, unkempt beard. Dr. Johnson compared him to the biblical Moses, just much more miserable looking. Even still, Dr. Johnson was immediately fascinated by Robert and asked for permission to treat the dangerous inmate. It took two frustrating years of bureaucratic back and forth, but he was eventually given the green light. So in 1991, Johnson approached Robert in his cell, determined to make a difference. At first, Robert was unsettled by the psychiatrist's presence. His mistrust of authority figures likely began with the doctors who treated him poorly at Broadmoor. So perhaps wanting to frighten the doctor away, Robert played into his reputation as a psychopathic killer. He sneered at Johnson and asked if he was scared. Resolute in his mission, the doctor responded, if you frighten me, I can't help you. Robert was surprised by Johnson's sincerity and decided to give the psychiatrist a chance. From then, Johnson met with Robert regularly in his cell to talk through his issues. Each time, they followed a set of agreed-upon ground rules. Dr. Johnson sat on the edge of the bed closest to the door, while Robert would sit on the other end of the bed, as far as possible from Johnson. Meanwhile, a guard was stationed at the threshold. Robert cautioned the psychiatrist that they had to be careful. He was capable of anything. So if Robert ever felt angry or anxious, or made Johnson nervous, the psychiatrist knew that he should immediately leave the cell, shutting the door behind him. Over the next few months, Johnson gained Robert's trust. Eventually, Robert felt comfortable enough that he shared the intimate details of his childhood abuse. He also told Johnson about his hardships of working the streets of London and about the harrowing experiences inside Broadmoor and Wakefield. For the first time in his life, someone listened to Robert's stories with sincerity and really seemed to care. Soon enough, his mental health stabilized and even showed significant improvement. After years of torment, he was able to quiet the voices in his head, and piece by piece, Johnson put together what drove Robert to violence. According to Dr. Johnson, Robert was entirely driven by the trauma of his violent childhood. For decades, he'd been unable to confront or recover from his past. The traumatic memories of his violent upbringing loomed large, ready to cause chaos at any moment. Whenever those memories emerged, Robert imagined himself back in his childhood home, about to be beaten by his father. Confronted with the visceral trauma, he lost control. The voices in his head told Robert that to prevent the abuse, he needed to kill his father. Unable to carry out that demand, Robert instead attacked whatever sex offender was in his path. Seeking to halt the cycle, Johnson focused his treatment on forcing Robert to confront his traumatic memories. He pushed Robert to conjure up his recollections of abuse and robbed them of the power they wielded in his head. 
To Dr. Johnson, Robert wasn't a monstrous killer. Though the rest of the world feared him, Johnson saw that deep down, Robert was a scared child who desperately needed help. Realizing that Robert was stuck in the past, Dr. Johnson challenged him to recognize the present. After months of work, Robert realized how much time had passed since he was locked in his parents' house and how far away the abuse really was. Johnson also encouraged Robert to mentally confront his father. Though George Maudsley was never in the room with them, Johnson pushed Robert to imagine his father sitting in an empty chair. Then, with nothing to fear, he could say what he needed to. Robert was no ordinary prisoner, and Johnson knew he was playing with fire. One wrong word or accidentally triggered memory could cause Robert to lose control. If Johnson exacerbated Robert's anger and mistrust, his own life could easily be at risk. But it was a chance he was willing to take for the sake of his patient. Up next, Robert Maudsley's return to the glass cage. Now back to the story. In 1992, 39-year-old Robert Maudsley was finally coming to terms with his childhood trauma. Through his psychiatric work with Dr. Robert Johnson at Parkhurst Prison, Robert was learning to let go of the childhood tragedies that haunted him and move beyond the rage and violence that consumed him. With Johnson's guidance, Robert imagined his father, George Maudsley, sitting in the cell ready to beat him. And instead of lashing out with violence, Robert was able to simply tell his father to stop. Slowly but surely, Johnson's treatment was making a difference. It's possible that had Robert gotten this kind of care and attention earlier, he might never have murdered at all. But still, it was better late than never. And Robert was definitely showing promising signs of improvement. Robert was finally willing to talk about his past and discuss the violent urges he felt. He also gained a newfound ability to identify and deal with his own psychological triggers, the memories and thoughts that drove him to violence. Johnson was encouraged by his patient's progress. He believed that with enough time, Robert could sever the psychological link between his present life and the abuse he suffered as a child. Johnson believed that if he was able to do that, it's possible that Robert would no longer pose a threat to anyone. After 18 months of therapy, Johnson was satisfied that a great deal of Robert's psychological damage had begun to heal. The violent compulsions caused by that trauma were slowly disappearing, and with that, the risk he posed to those around him. However, there were still topics Robert avoided during their sessions. When talk turned to the murders he committed, he wouldn't, or couldn't, give Johnson a full explanation of his motives. But Johnson remained persistent. He truly believed that Robert could be healed and rendered safe. After decades of abuse and institutional neglect, Robert was finally getting the help he desperately needed, letting go of his past and freeing himself of his violent thoughts. But in 1993, Robert and Dr. Johnson received an unwelcome piece of news. Without offering any explanation, Her Majesty's Prison Service demanded a halt to Robert's sessions with Dr. Johnson and removed him from Parkhurst Prison. Robert was devastated when he was placed on a boat back to the mainland. Plagued once more by violent thoughts, he felt himself losing his grip on the progress he'd made with Dr. Johnson. It was a demoralizing step back. 
Luckily, Robert wasn't returned to the brutal conditions and isolation of the Wakefield glass cage for long. After a few years at Wakefield, he was sent to Wood Hill Prison, where the regulations were more relaxed and he was treated humanely. He was given access to books and music, played chess with guards, and was even allowed to interact with other inmates. But this small amount of relative freedom didn't last very long. In 1999, officials abruptly declared Robert too dangerous to be kept in such lax conditions and sent him back to his old isolated cell in Wakefield. In 2000, having spent more than a decade in his cell at Wakefield, 46-year-old Robert petitioned the courts to have his solitary confinement relaxed. He argued that he didn't pose any danger to other prisoners or guards. His request was rejected. It was now clear to Robert that he would never leave solitary confinement. Realizing this, he sent letters to the press arguing that he was receiving inhumane treatment and asking for small concessions to make his life more bearable. Failing that, he made a public appeal for permission to die by taking a cyanide capsule. The prison likely denied Robert's claims that his treatment was inhumane and refused this request. In press coverage of his letter, Journalists compared Robert to the villain in The Silence of the Lambs. Robert's infamy had grown so great that his association with a fictional character was used as justification for his current imprisonment. After this final appeal failed, Robert understood that there would be no respite from his solitary existence. Meanwhile, Dr. Johnson remained committed to his patient. Although his petitions to visit Wakefield were denied, Johnson wrote regular letters to Robert, However, his letters went unanswered. When at last Johnson did receive a reply, he was greatly disappointed. Robert wrote him a heartbreaking three-word note, all alone now. It seemed that in coming to terms with his imprisonment, Robert had decided there was no point in further treatment. He gave up all hope for a better existence. Without purpose, he refused haircuts and shaves for years, earning him a new nickname, the Wolfman of Wakefield. Apparently, Robert actually liked this moniker, considering it a step up from his previous ones, Hannibal the Cannibal and Spoons. A prisoner who knew Robert from his time at Woodhill arrived at Wakefield and was shocked at the change in him. He said, he's really got nothing left in his life except his mad, mad world. He lives in a complete fantasy of violence. Whether or not this prisoner's opinion is accurate, it's clear that Robert's already fragile mental health suffered as a result of his years in solitary confinement. In 1983, Harvard Medical School psychiatrist Stuart Grassian conducted a study of prison inmates subjected to long periods of solitary confinement. He found that many suffered from the same set of harmful psychological symptoms, including hallucinations, paranoia, acute anxiety, and difficulty thinking. Inside his glass cage, Robert also experienced severe mood swings. In letters, Robert has stated that he will inevitably suffer a mental breakdown and has described his solitary confinement as one long period of unbroken depression. But despite the isolation, Robert didn't break. Ironically, what pulled him back from the brink was the same thing that caused him so much pain as a child, his family. From deep inside his glass cage, Robert reconnected with his older brothers, who came to visit him at last. 
He also formed a close relationship with his nephew, Gavin, and wrote him letters. Over the next two decades, Robert fought to have his restrictions eased. He was eventually given a TV in his cell, as well as a PlayStation 2, which both helped ease the monotony of his existence. Despite relaxing the rules, to the prison administration and guards, the threat of Robert's psychotic violence has remained frighteningly apparent. One day, Robert watched a guard enter his cell, carrying his food. Perhaps believing the man had spit in it, his anger flared up. When the guard came closer, Robert grabbed the tray and smashed it over his head. The guard wasn't seriously injured, but the attack was another reminder of what Robert could do if he felt victimized. To this day, the guards at Wakefield treat him like the most dangerous prisoner in the country. But the most feared prisoner in Britain is a shadow of his former self. Those who have visited Robert describe him as looking far older than his actual age, with transparently pale skin. Now 67, Robert Maudsley has spent the majority of his life in a glass cage. He spends 23 hours a day in complete isolation and under constant surveillance. Each day, a team of guards escorts Robert to a concrete yard for one hour of exercise, typically a weary, shuffling walk around the small space. He has no other human contact. Even his meals are sent through a slot in the wall for him to eat alone. In the last few years, Robert's physical and mental health have reportedly declined. Some have suggested that he is simply waiting to die. But his nephew has suggested that there is one thing that keeps him going. If Robert makes it to 43 years inside his cage, he'll break the world record for the longest time spent in solitary confinement. Maybe then, Robert Maudsley will finally be known as something other than Hannibal the Cannibal. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back with another story soon. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners. Remember to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.